Well, we're continuing on in our uh, series uh, on the book of First Peter that we've been calling uh, the Stand Out series. And, and just to bring us back, it's been a little while since we've dug into this uh, with some big announcements. And of course, we had a fifth Sunday in there. It's been a little bit of a break since we've uh, been digging into this, uh, this incredible text. Uh, what we've been looking at is some ways in which Peter is coaching the church in Asia Minor, which is a relatively young church, if Peter is obviously still around to be coaching them. Uh, it's a church in the first century of Christianity, and, and Peter is speaking to them, and he's saying, um, there are some real ways in which you stand out as, as different people in your culture. There's some real ways in which uh, you're called to be a little bit different. There's some ways in which you don't quite fit. And, and to the people in, in Peter's time, in that place, that was really obvious. There was uh, not a systematic persecution of the church at that time. Uh, that was something that didn't happen across the Roman Empire uh, for another couple of hundred years. But locally, uh, everybody in the culture had the power and authority to sort of enforce the prevailing worldview on people. You could uh, beat your, uh, your belief about your household gods into your wife and into your children and into your slaves. And, and of course, in the early church, the very first people to come into the kingdom were uh, in, in a really strong way, and we have this from, from a number of different sources, uh, were of course slaves and, and women and marginalized people in the culture. And so um, these people were living within their homes and within their jobs and their workplaces as people who were under significant duress and significant pressure to conform to society, and society had power to make them conform. Now that's a little bit different from the circumstances we live in. We, we don't have society forcing us uh, with physical strength to conform to it, but if you're like me, do you feel some pressure? A little bit? Yeah, we feel, we feel pressure to conform and some of that comes from media, and some of that comes from, you know, a host of other things. And some of that just comes from, uh, I, I would say, a constant flow of, of sort of uh, aggressive deception that's being worked, I think, in the world. Not, not to, I'm not a person who fears the devil or fears deception, but there is an agenda to see the church further marginalized, right? So, so that's out there, um, but it's not something to fear. And that's what Peter is saying to his, to his people. He's saying, uh, there's a way that you can live differently. There's a way that you can stand out in the best possible way. And not only is it a way that uh, is, is, might cause you some suffering in life and some, some challenge in life, but, but it's God's way and, and it's an awesome way and your lives will ultimately be uh, blessed through it. Um, now, I've had a, an incredible opportunity over the last little while to speak to, uh, I'd get my youth pastor pants on. I actually don't have any youth pastor pants, but, but I should. They, I think they're like those sort of parachute pants. I think, and they're usually a bright color. I think they're called pop pants. I don't know if anybody wants to sponsor me to get some uh, jeggings or, or some tight uh, kind of colorful cords or something like that. I don't, I don't think that's a good idea, okay? So let's not, let's not do that. But I've had the opportunity uh, to speak to, to two distinct groups of youth. I, I spoke with our youth, OVV youth, incredible uh, young people at uh, Karenbeck School on Wednesday nights just to do another sort of hot seat kind of event where they had their burning questions and they sort of present them and I have to just sort of sit there and take their burning questions. And it's, and it's always fun to speak to those guys. And I also had the opportunity to do a retreat for the youth at Calvary Christian Academy. Um, 
which is, uh, which is obviously, it's a Christian school. And what I noticed uh, in, in speaking to those two different groups is that there's a, a distinctly different way that I communicate with both of them. Um, speaking to the youth at, at Calvary Christian Academy, um, for the most part, most of those kids are kids who have grown up in Christian homes. They're kids who have grown up in, in families with, uh, with uh, at least some sort of Christian foundation. They've got some sort of biblical language, uh, understanding of some of the Bible stories, and all of that. And when I speak to youth at OVV Youth, and what I love about OVV Youth is that it is a true outreach program. A huge percentage of the kids that are there at OVV Youth on any given week are completely unchurched kids. They're kids who are drawn there by, by the work of the leaders, by the fun games that they play, by the community that they experience. Uh, just, that's just a plug for OBV Youth. Please pray for this ministry. It, it, it's really one of the cutting-edge ministries that we have in the church. These youth are, are really reaching each other in an incredibly beautiful way, and they really, really need your prayer support. Uh, so please, please pray for them. Awesome, awesome kids. But when I speak to those kids, uh, I have to go sort of further back in terms of making a case for things like uh, what we're going to talk about today is uh, Christian biblical morality. So when I'm making a case for, for this with Christian kids, I can easily sort of make a case from the scriptures and I can sort of make a case from um, uh, sort of some of their knowledge that I know that they have in their heads. But uh, when, I, when I'm making a case for OVV youth, uh, I, I have to speak in language that, that assumes that they really don't have the God story inside them. Now, when I'm speaking to the youth at CCA, I'm also going back uh, anyway, but uh, because they, they, they need to own their faith for themselves and not just have it as uh, this is the, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me, so I want them to really wrestle with those big questions, but with uh, OVV youth, it's absolutely necessary to do that. Now, around biblical morality, um, you can have a discussion with people in our culture uh, on the basis of these things I'm telling you, I can probably make a case for these being good behaviors in your life if I can make a case for you that they are good personal health choices, right? You can make a case uh, for, for people in, in our culture to, to make good moral choices if you can make a case that it's, it, it's a good choice. And everything in the scriptures that is something that is uh, a moral choice that God is calling us to or something in the law, if you look at it, you can really boil it down to something that can be understood as something that is ultimately going to bless you, that something that is ultimately going to be a gift from God. Uh, you, can, you can certainly make that case. Um, but the challenge in doing that uh, around a host of different issues is that uh, we have this built into our culture hope that uh, ultimately our health choices, our health issues will somehow be solved miraculously, not necessarily by God, not necessarily uh, through uh, the ultimate salvation that Christians look to, uh, ultimately the resurrection, but somehow the medical system will make it work. So where this, where this plays out when I'm having a discussion with, with young people or whether I'm having a discussion with, with anybody I'm talking to uh, on the streets is you can uh, talk about, uh, say, why Christians believe uh, it's worth waiting for a heterosexual 
uh, marriage, why we believe marriage is between one man and one woman, why we ultimately believe that. And you could make a case uh, for people around the idea that um, the body is designed to function a certain way, that you want to protect uh, your natural ability to procreate, that that's something that, that it's least worth wrestling with. Uh, you can uh, talk about complementarity in parenting and a host of other issues all around that idea of, yeah, this could benefit my life to wrestle with this big question. But the scriptures offer us that and, and offer us actually something more. Uh, they offer us something more than just morality as something that's good for us. They offer us uh, the idea that uh, there, there are bigger reasons. Because when you talk to, to young people, uh, in, in a Christian culture, you can sometimes get away with using the word should. <laughs> but you can never get away with using the word should uh, in, in a non-Christian culture. Um, a Barna study uh, sa says this. Um, this is a study that was done in, uh, I believe it was 2012. Uh, he posed this question to over 1,000 people. Is religious faith becoming more important to you than it used to be as a source of objective and reliable moral guidance? Objective and reliable moral guidance. 91% of people who identify as born-again Christians would agree. Yes, my faith uh, impacts uh, how I, I guide myself morally. 60% of mainline Christians would agree with that. 39% of people who wouldn't identify as Christians but may have another religious background would agree with, with that. So the number is, is declining. And surprisingly, 17% of those with no faith affiliation at all will still look to uh, faith communities and faith cultures and we'll consider the Bible and we'll consider uh, other things like that to uh, see as a source of input on how they make moral choices. But as you see, the closer you are to an understanding of the need to be born again, the easier it is to say uh, for people that I'm going to consult God about my moral choices. And the further you are away from that position, the less people do that, right? That's a fairly obvious uh, thing that we see. So how does... Peter pitched this idea to these Christians living in Asia Minor, uh, calling them to a strong uh, morality that's more in line with, uh, with the, sort of a Jewish form, that's more in line with, with a Christian form for sexual purity, for how they do relationships, how they do giving, how they do all of the stuff they do. Uh, how does he make a case for this? For these Christians who are under pressure to, to conform and to constantly sort of abandon a, a strong moral uh, foundation, how, how does he make the case? And so we're going to just dig into the text, and I just want to show us a few things there, because he doesn't at all make a case for why it's good for you. He doesn't at all make a case for it as this is something that will be personally good for you. This is a, a case that is based on something completely different, and I want us to see it in the scriptures. Let's look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 10 to 12. And again, I just want to say maybe before we read this, that I really do believe that God wants our best, that, that, a, that a foundation for his moral law is his desire to bless us, is his desire to care for us, is his, his desire for us to be healthy. So I'm not saying that that isn't 
a case for, for strong moral living, but I'm saying that, uh, that Peter offers a different case, and I want us to just dig into that. Uh, verse 13 reads like this. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or without defect. Uh, Peter starts uh, with a therefore, and, and actually at the end of us digging into this text, I'm going to ask that question that we always ask when we see a therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Uh, but he, he says, this is with minds that are alert. And I just want to bring a few of these words uh, to, to attention for us. Uh, one, he, he acknowledges that uh, our intellectual capacity has to be married into our decision-making process. Um, for us as people in our culture, uh, in terms of what we're taught to believe about how we initiate uh, say romantic relationships and, and other things where we're almost uh, completely told to be guided by that sense of, of, of feeling, that sense of am I attracted, am I uh, connected emotionally, all that. That's not to say that that's not a piece of it, not to say that it's not important, uh, but he says this, he says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, and that word alert there uh, is, is actually, again, is an action word. Uh, that word alert is, uh, is there is meaning prepared for action with minds that are prepared for action. And I just think that's a really critical piece for us is, is recognizing that, that our minds have power to translate us into action. That we're not people who are controlled uh, purely biologically, that we're not people that are keeping purely controlled by our desires. We're not purely controlled by our wants, but we have uh, something inside of us that's able to marry in the intellect, uh, to let that be a part of our process, a part of our decision-making, a part of how we do what we do. So with our, your minds alert and fully sober, set your heart on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at this time. Uh, that word grace is, a great, is the same word that we talked about when we were talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's the word gifts. So, so read the text like this. It says, so set your hope on the gift to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. Yeah, grace is one of those sort of, it's a wonderful word, but it's, it, it's kind of an, a religious word, isn't it? And we just, uh, I tend to, when I read that word, I tend to sort of gloss over it and just sort of think, 
yeah, that grace is just kind of a nice, good, awesome feeling. I, I love the feeling of grace. It, it feels so good. I feel so loved, even though I'm a mess. And that's 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 grace, and sort of a sort of a passive approach to receiving almost an intangible. But the language that uh, Peter is using here is is much more concrete, tangible language. What's coming to you? What Jesus has revealed is something that is tangible. It's something that you can place your hands on. And we looked at this earlier when we when we looked at the. The, the big, long, giant run-on sentence from the earlier part of the passage, uh, it's, it's actually um, something that is, is really concrete. It's founded in a historical understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's founded in an event that everybody in that time and place actually knew happened. So this gift that is coming to you is founded in something tangible that you know happened. It, it's much more immediate and much more present. Uh, to the people who are reading it at that time than it is to us who, who tend to just gloss over religious language uh, like that. And he says this, he says, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires. That evil desires there is actually, uh, again, a fairly active word. It's lust. It's actually lust. And in, in older translation, that's what it says. It says lust, but we don't like to talk about that now, so we took that out of our modern translations. But it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of an aggressive grasping and clawing and taking into yourself, right? So, so we have that uh, in us. Do not conform to what you had when you lived in ignorance. Uh, but as obedient children, uh, that word there, hypokoe, is, uh, is as responsive hearers. As responsive hearers of the word, as, as those who hear and are prepared to respond. Again, it's, it's tying the whole thing into action. Obedience is, is not just an obedience of the heart, but an obedience uh, of our bodies. Do not confirm to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And then again, there's a little bit more to that word. That word is a willful ignorance, a chosen ignorance. It's a verb. Uh, in that case. It's not just, I'm ignorant because I, when we think of ignorance, we think it's just, nobody told me about that, right? That's sort of what we think of when we think of ignorance, but this is, this word really implies a, a willful ignorance, a chosen ignorance. Um, but just as he who called you was holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And that comes from Le Leviticus 20, uh, 26, and this is really the interpretive key to the whole passage. Uh, Leviticus 20:26 uh, 20, uh, continues on that phrase. It says, "Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. I've set you apart from the peoples to be mine, and all of a sudden, this God is much less distant." and is taking much more ownership in our lives. All of a sudden, uh, this calling apart isn't just a set apart over here, separate from the culture. The culture's here, and we're supposed to be a little bit different over here. It's not just God saying, okay, this one is over here, and this one is over here. It's God saying, this one is over here, and this one is over here. This one is mine. This one is called into me. This one is called to be a part of me. And we see uh, all through First Peter this incredible language of fatherhood and, and, and children. We see it in, in this uh, verse uh, 14 as obedient children. The implication then is that the, that the foundation for Christian morality is not in the policehood of God, but the fatherhood of God. 
right? It's in his, his ownership of us as a father, a, as a creator. And he goes on to say this explicitly in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, that should stand out to us because how many fathers judge anything impartially? <laughs> I know I don't, <laughs> right? Uh, I, don't, I don't have a natural tendency to, I actually think my children are better than all of your children. <laughs> Uh, I think that's just a, <laughs> it's not true. I know it's not true intellectually, but, but I, tend to, uh, I tend to operate out of that as a father. I'm a proud papa. I'm a proud papa, but, but God, uh, and this is an, a side note that Peter is, is giving. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person impartially, live your light out as time as foreigners here in reverent fear, and that reverent fear is, is sort of linguistically tied to father impartially. It, it's sort of tied to a sense of uh, a reverence that one would have for a parent. A reverence that one would have for, now I know all of your children, my, my son Jack is not the most reverent child. Uh, you, you guys probably, probably know that, but I can make him reverent. <laughs> Sometimes I can I can get that out of him, uh, but uh, but uh, there's a way in which he does have a deep and abiding respect for me, and when it's important, he will listen to me. Yeah, when it's when it's really important, he's he's there, and that's the sort of there that we're called to uh, with our heavenly Father. Uh, and what he does is he, he just, I'm just going to take a, just a second to look at this, but, with, but uh, not from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. What he's saying is that uh, not only is, does he have all of the love and affection of a father, but he also has the impartiality of a just judge. And how he marries that, and he's just reminding us of the gospel, he marries the impartiality of the just judge with the passion of the loving father in the cross. He marries that in the cross and, and, and it's in the cross that impartiality and judgment and justice happens. What we've done wrong, the ways we've sinned against the father, the ways we've uh, gone opposite to his way, the things that we have to do that need to be paid for he says his love for us isn't just a love that, that sort of pretends that stuff isn't there and just sort of, uh, I didn't really see that. You, you didn't punch that other kid in the nose. I mean, I'm tempted to do that when one of my children punches another kid in the nose. What? I didn't see that. that that's, that's sort of my kind of partial love as a father. But his impartial love on the father takes that payment that needs to be happened for that thing that was done upon himself on the cross. He's the God who spanks himself. He's the God who spanks himself. He lets justice be done upon himself. And so his impartiality, his judgment is visited on himself. And so uh, tying it back with that thought earlier in the passage, the gift that we receive in a tangible way from Christ, that gift of grace and forgiveness is that much more solid because we know that justice has been done. It's an absolutely free and awesome gift. And this idea of father is, is so important. Uh, the, the word father implies so much in the, in the Hebrew language that we just don't get. And we just, you know, I had a really, really good dad. I love you, dad. I, I had a really, really good dad. 
But even me with the good dad, I, I don't think I even get a fraction of the goodness of God, the Father. And some of you had a dad who wasn't so good as the dad I had. So this idea of God as Father may be hard for you, but what it means in that space, in that time, in that culture, is that the Father is one who not only imparts life, not only gives life, not only gives life forth, but, but who is committed to it. Remember that image of God drawing us in and gathering us in. Not separating us out, but separating us by bringing us into himself. He's a progenitor, uh, bringing into being to pass on the potential for likeness. So not only uh, for the, in the Hebrew mind is the father uh, someone who gives life and who is committed to life, but he's committed to seeing himself in that life as it goes out from him. He's committed to seeing his reflection in that life. He's committed to seeing himself out there in the world. He's committed to seeing little Jesuses out there. And that's where uh, that word Christians come from, little Christs. Little Jesuses out there. He's committed to seeing that, that happen. And so to, to, to really grasp that and to see that sort of idea of God as, as not only being invested in us for us, but being invested in us for how we present himself, present him to the world, and how our reflection uh, reflects him. Uh, we see that in looking at that question that I mentioned earlier, what was that therefore, therefore? And we go back to 1 Peter verse 10. And remember, Peter is talking about this incredible story of salvation that he's building with you, this incredible story of grace that he's crafting uh, in the life, this incredible hope that we have. And he says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. They're interested in this story. Uh, they, they care to find out how God's salvation is going to work in the, in the earth trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Again, a tie to the cross. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have, been, who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. That call to holiness is a call to be united with God. That call to holiness is a call to reflect who he is. That call to holiness is a call to be molded by him and made by him and shaped by him. And all too often when we think of the call to holiness, our image of God is this. That he's a God who has somehow set up arbitrary rules for us to just trip on and fall on and just fail at. And we see God as somebody who has set some boundaries. He's decided this is the way the universe should be. This is the way I want it to look. Uh, this is how I want it to be, and so just don't do all that stuff. And we see uh, this, this, uh, this hand of God that's saying, stop. 
But this is much, much closer to reality. And all over the scriptures, we see not only God who is our father, but God who is an artist. And I think it's this understanding of God as our creator, and we see this uh, from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, all the way through the scriptures, and I wish I'd taken the time to just show it to you. It appears dozens of times in scriptures. I'm going to just give you just a, just a brief sampling of some. Uh, what God is trying to create in us isn't just a, a person that's different just to be different. He's trying to create a piece of work. He's trying to create a piece of artwork. He's trying to create something awesome that looks like him. And as we talked about earlier in, in that passage, even the angels long to look into this, right? Uh, say this, this is a, I can't give you the whole thing, but in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, and this is this incredible passage in Isaiah where, where Isaiah is just crying out and repenting. We haven't heard you, God. We haven't seen you. We haven't done all this. You should destroy us. You should wipe us out. We're worms. We're awful. We're worthless. Yet you, O Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hands. We are the work of your hands. Uh, in Ephesians 2, chapter 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do God's work. For we are God's masterpieces, is what that word actually means in the Greek. We're, God, we're God's masterpieces. Uh, the best way to imagine ourselves when we're imagining a call to holiness, a call to being Christ-like, a call to following him is to imagine us uh, in his home. Uh, maybe, I mean, I think this is actually too impersonal an image, but when we think of craftsmanship or, or artistry, we think of some piece of pottery that he has lovingly placed on his mantle and he calls and he says he says to, to Abraham and I says, come look at this come look at this incredible work look at this incredible work that I'm doing in Dane angels come and look at what I've what I've done in him look at this amazing guy look at his incredible redemption story isn't that amazing look at Sheila look at her story isn't she beautiful come look I died for this precious woman she's so awesome Come and see the holiness and the beauty that I'm working in here. Come and see it. Come and see the works of my hands. Come and see this story. And we see holiness now so much more, not as, as a, sort of a, a rule-following, legalistic police thing. And we see it as the hands of a loving God. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, uh, people often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain which, in which God says, well, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Each of us 
at each moment is progressing into one state or the other. This work of God's hands on us isn't just his hands on us, but it's a partnership with him. As we make choices, we choose to rest on that mantelpiece in the, in the throne room or the living room of, of God. Uh, we choose to let color be swirled into the work at his hands, or we choose not to. Uh, and, and many of us choose to throw ourselves on the floor and smash our lives to pieces. But will, with each tiny little choice, will we choose to become more and more the piece of art that he envisions in us, that he's created in us as a God who loves us, as a God who loves his art and, and who, who pours over every detail with great attention and with great affection and with great love. And if you see that, it becomes much, much easier to follow God. You know, I, I, uh, as I wrestle with, with my own issues in terms of sin and, and struggle, as, as you know, you know there's, there's probably no greater temptation for me in life than a giant piece of pizza or a piece of chocolate cake. And, and for me, probably more than, more than the rest of you, and maybe some yes, maybe some no, that, that for me is, is where I experience lust. That for me is where I experience a desire to take that thing and to just cram it inside myself, to, to choose it, to bring it inside myself. And if I was making a case for why not to eat that piece of pizza, if I made a case on the immediate benefit of what feels good, I would eat every piece that pizza is going to benefit me because I'm going to feel much better in about two minutes after I've consumed it. Now, I could make a case for not consuming it based on, uh, you know what, that's not going to make me feel good long term. I'm going to get fat. But then I would think to myself, well, I'll just go for a walk in the morning and it'll be all good. I'm still going to eat that piece of pizza. And then I'm going to have some bacon and eggs for breakfast. And it goes on and on, right? That's what the struggle is like. But for me, uh, this, this struggle to become healthy and this struggle uh, to, to, to make better choices, the most important idea in my struggle of late has been this idea. That God is trying to craft not only my spirit, not only my heart, but actually my physical body into something that's just a little bit closer to that resurrection body that I'm going to get to walk in someday. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we believe in the resurrection of our bodies, that we are pieces of artwork, physical body, soul, and spirit that God is lovingly crafting. And there's so much joy for us to be had in simply participating in this incredible love that he's pouring out on us. It's a work of love. And that might mean giving up the thing that we lust after or that we want, but it's so much easier to do that when we see the beauty that he's making in us. The foundation for Christian morality is not in knowing the holiness or anger of God but an even greater reverence that comes by understanding the artistry of God. We've got to understand the artistry of God, God the artist. 
And God who loves you, the God who's constantly crafting you and constantly making you and constantly shaping you, he loves you so much. So how do you imagine the hand of God? Is it this? Or is it this? Or is it this? God who cherishes you. And if you are willing to come to a place of believing that God's hands are like this, embracing you, calling you to himself, calling you to a process of being transformed and made like him, all of the moral issues you're struggling with become much, much clearer and much, much easier to follow. Let's stand up and pray. Father, I ask that you would settle in the hearts of each person here a really clear vision of how you cherish them. A really clear vision of how much they are yours. Would you let each one hear your voice whispering in their ears, you are mine. You are mine. would you let each one experience on their uh, journey to holiness the gentle and kind hands of a father would you let that go deep in our spirits would you set us free from the images of you as a cosmic policeman cosmic killjoy and come to see you as a passionate father and as an artist let us feel so loved by you Thank you for the impartial nature of how you love us. By taking the things you wanted to break off of our lives and, and, uh, and taking them to the cross, taking them upon yourself. Father, I pray for those here this morning who uh, haven't felt yet like they could trust you with their lives. That, that even this morning they would be able to just let go to let go of some of the moral wrestling that they've been struggling with, the, the, the understanding of, man, I, I don't know if I, I can give my life to a God who might be mean. Would you let each one see really your true love, that they would be able to trust you and to, and to let their lives be in your hands, trust in your goodness. We give ourselves to you, Father. You are the potter, we are the clay. Take us and mold us, and do with us what you want. We love you, Lord Jesus.
we give ourselves to you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.